The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture. And today I have an expert in all of those issues, Dr. Doug Gurian Sherman. He is a senior scientist in the Food and Environment Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists, where he focuses on agricultural biotechnology and sustainable agriculture. He is the author of numerous papers and reports, including one of my favorites, Failure to Yield, Evaluating the Performance of Genetically Engineered Crops. He also did a report on CAFOs, Uncovered, the Untold Cost of Confined Animal Feeding Operations. From 2004 to 2006, Dr. Gurian Sherman was Senior Scientist at the Center for Food Safety in Washington, D.C. He's been with the Center for Science and the Public Interest. He's worked with the Environmental Protection Agency. And before that, he also did some research in California. He has a doctorate degree in plant pathology from the University of California at Berkeley. And he conducted postdoctoral research on rice and wheat molecular biology at USDA Laboratory in Albany, California. Woo! Welcome. It's great to have you, Dr. Gurian Sherman. Great to be back with you. You have such a terrific background in this topic of biotechnology, and you have a wonderful blog, and you've written some great reports for the Union of Concerned Scientists. And the one that really sparked my interest, and the reason why I really needed to have you back on, was a paper that you wrote called Rise of Superweeds and What to Do About It. And it described what's been going on as a result of biotechnology, specifically the genetic engineering or the herbicide-resistant kind of genetic engineering that we've seen with corn and soybeans and canola and sugar beets. So maybe we should back up and let me just start out by asking you, what are we talking about when we talk about a genetically engineered crop or a GMO? Well, historically, these have been lab-based techniques where a gene of interest that could come from any organism is isolated, cut out essentially from the other genes that surround it in the genome of a bacteria or a virus, wherever it comes from, and then inserted into the genetic material of a plant. You know, we're usually talking, obviously, about crop plants here, soybean, corn, and so on. And after that happens, then it becomes part of the genetic makeup of that crop and is carried forward from one generation to the next. And what distinguishes it beside the actual kind of lab-based aspect of these techniques are two things. One is you can access genes from any organism, as I said, bacteria, viruses, that would normally not show up in the genetic material of a plant. You, You can breed a plant with a plant. You can breed a dog with a dog. You can't breed a plant with a bacteria, or even a corn plant with a cotton plant, or a corn plant with a weed. You know, that's just how genetics works. And so genetic engineering then allows us to jump that, what we call species barrier. Unlike traditional breeding, where you can cross a corn plant with a corn plant, or potentially a corn plant with a closely related plant, you can cross a tomato the tomato or tomato with one of its wild relatives that tomatoes were domesticated from thousands of years ago, but you can't really go beyond that. 
And so what this means is you have a much wider range of genes that have never been in the food supply that can be accessed through genetic engineering, have never been in the crop ecosystem in the form of being in a plant, which can have potentially ecological effects. And so that's the, the general concern. It's often said by some scientists that, well, we can have the kinds of harm that could occur through genetic engineering through breeding, and that on a general level is true. Allergenicity, toxicity, all of those things can happen through breeding. The question is, and where I think scientists differ, is the likelihood of some kind of harm greater or not when you're using genetic engineering and bringing in genes from other sources. And some of us, including me, think that that increases the the risk level. Other scientists disagree. I don't think there's a huge amount of data, but I think it does warrant you know, caution. Beyond that, though, all of the main evaluatory, regulatory bodies, scientific bodies like the National Academy of Sciences and a series of reports have all said that genetic engineering can cause both health and environmental risks, some of them from some genetically engineered genes and crops that could be substantial. And so what that means to me is that if we're going to allow these things, we need a regulatory system that is up to the task of identifying particular genetically engineered crops, particular gene crop combinations that could be hazardous. And that's where I think a lot of the debate among scientists lie, and scientists like myself feel quite strongly that the current regulatory system is is too weak, very weak, and the industry and some of the scientists that support it actually go to the other extreme and say it's onerous, too costly, and we should actually reduce the level of regulation, which I, I think would be a big mistake. Mm-hmm. It's interesting you talk about how these crops are created. And as I understand, they have been created mostly to be resistant to herbicides. There's that one category, and then there's another category that has a BT toxin in it. And then you've got these crops that are fortified, if you will, if that's the right term, perhaps to contain a vitamin like golden rice. That's my understanding that those are three categories. Would you agree? No, well, there's there's potentially lots of other categories. I mean, some crops have been engineered to produce pharmaceuticals. Right. Uh, None of them are out there, you know, commercialized, and none of them have been successful. It's important to point out that the golden rice, for example, uh, still is in trials and being worked on. Environmentalists have sometimes been blamed for slowing that down, but it's really, you know, technical reasons that have been largely responsible for the time it's taken to, you know, to get that supposedly ready for commercialization, which is usually the case. It's a myth, by the way, that this technology is very fast. That's been one claim that many have made that, you know, separates it from breeding. But in fact, geneticists and others have shown that it typically takes 10 to 15 years at least to produce an engineered trait, and that's about what it takes to produce a trait by breeding. So, for various reasons, it's not really any faster. Hmm. Um, but yes, the the main traits, probably 80% of the, the acreage out there is for herbicide resistance, and almost all of that is to Roundup herbicide or glyphosate. Most of the other 20% are the BT crops you're talking about where the crop produces a toxin coming from a soil bacterium that kills certain kinds of insects. And then a very tiny fraction, less than 1%, are things like virus-resistant papaya and a couple kinds of squash and 
Monsanto developed drought tolerant corn, which has so far not been very successful and, and a few others. But, but it is important, I think, to understand that really what this technology is about so far is, you know, mostly herbicides and mostly pests and pest protection. And despite the claims of many that technology can do all these other kinds of things, improve drought tolerance and nutritional quality and stress tolerance and salt tolerance in soil and many other things, those things have almost uniformly been not successful yet, despite 30 years of the science and 20 years almost of commercialization. And there's reasons for that, and I get into that in a lot of you know my reports about what the challenges are for this technology, because one, you know, it's being controlled by large companies, and their interest is in selling products, and the herbicide example is a great one where they're selling both the herbicide you know and the seed and secondly these are really kind of the low-hanging fruit for the technology because these are very strong what we call dominant strong single genes that act very directly whereas for traits like yield and you know yield potential or drought tolerance and so on those traits are controlled by many, many different genes that do lots of different things and they perform differently in different environments, you know, depending on the season length and the, you know, temperatures and all of those things and soil conditions. And to find single genes that are going to have a major effect and be useful for those kind of traits that are really important is a much bigger hurdle for genetic engineering. And I think that's one of the main reasons why it really has not, along with the desire for high commercial potential is one reason the technology really has not been very successful beyond these couple, you know, types of traits. Well, and I think the average consumer might be surprised to know just how much corn, soybeans, canola, and sugar beets, over 90% of those crops planted in the United States are indeed herbicide resistant. And what that should also tell us if a crop is herbicide resistant, that means they are being sprayed with this herbicide, which you mentioned was Roundup or glyphosate, the active ingredient. And so now what's happening, and as your reports have so eloquently described, weeds, which are doing what they do, they are developing resistance to glyphosate. And there are new crops now in the pipeline with another herbicide-tolerant trait, and that is to 2,4-D. And I, I guess if I'm understanding correctly, the crops will have a tolerance now to both glyphosate and 2,4-D? Yes. I mean, maybe not all of them, but basically that's the idea is, you know, whether they have it initially or not, have both of them initially or not, inevitably they will be bred together to, to then bring those engineered traits into the same crop varieties. So they will have multiple types of herbicide uh, resistance, yes. Okay, so 2,4-D, we may see headlines saying uh, the new agent orange crops are coming down the pipeline, and we should probably just step back and explain where that terminology comes from, and that is that 2,4-D was one of two major ingredients in agent orange, the defoliant used in Vietnam. The other one was, I believe, 2,4-5-T. Right. So it's a piece of that agent orange. That's where that terminology comes from. My concern with 2,4-D is that it seems to be a more dangerous herbicide, at least from past experience with, with the compound. As you mentioned in your post about USDA's decision on herbicide-resistant crops betrays farmers and the public, 
You write that 2,4-D has been associated with human health risks, such as non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and it is considered by some health agencies to be a possible human carcinogen. I think there's also been some research in the Northern Plains linking 2,4-D use in wheat-growing areas with an increased risk of birth defects. What the heck are we doing? Well, that's a good question, and we have a, a registration process for pesticides and it's better than for a lot of other chemicals where we do no testing before we enter, you know, put them into industrial processes and so on. But, you know, we have to remember that, that none of these testing procedures are perfect and will, you know, necessarily identify all types of diseases. And, you know, one good example is endocrine disruption, which can be a factor in birth defects or some types of cancer and other diseases. And it's something we've only really known about for the last 15 plus years and EPA didn't even have regulations to test for endocrine disruption till the Food Quality Protection Act was passed in 96 and it's only been in the past few years that actual test protocols have been developed for endocrine disruption so most of the chemicals out there including I think 2,4-D and others um, have not been tested for endocrine disruption. So it basically just shows you that there are gaps in our knowledge. The other big area that we know very little about is how different types of pesticides or other chemicals interact even in small quantities to have unexpected effects that are never tested for because uh, pesticides are tested singly. And finally, there are often other ingredients in pesticides that have a lower standard of testing. We used to call them inert ingredients, but mm -hmm. they're often far from inert. And in fact, uh, with Roundup, it's a, a surfactant, something that helps the herbicide penetrate into the plant to make it more effective. That is one of the things that has been clearly shown to be, you know, one of the more toxic aspects and, you know, is highly toxic to amphibians like frogs, which are important in our environment. So, while EPA does a good job in some ways, those tests are not perfect. And so I think the general dicta from my perspective is we should use as few of these chemicals as we possibly can. And as you said, there is are some indications, especially with epidemiological studies, that 2,4-D may be associated with, you know, several diseases that you mentioned. And so, you know, taking a more cautious approach with these things, to me, makes a lot of sense, especially, and this is what we try to talk about in our briefing paper, is that there are, vi are viable, highly productive, economically viable um, alternatives to using herbicides, or at least in non-organic systems, reducing them by 90, 95% or more, that have multiple environmental benefits, are be better for biodiversity, better for water quality, better for the health of farmers and our communities, and are just not being implemented uh, in part because of farm bill policies that encourage, you know, industrial type agriculture and research for decades that has focused on industrial ag at the expense of sustainable ag and making it more efficient and companies pushing their products and, and that kind of agriculture. Because the bottom line is that growing food in an ecologically and biologically sound way is not what the companies want because it's not a product-intensive approach to farming. It's a knowledge-intensive approach, how you sequence your crops, growing cover crops, how you improve the soil of, of farms, which are all critical. It is not something that is focused on buying fertilizer and buying pesticides. In fact, it reduces the amount of those products that are needed by farmers. So 
clearly when the big farm-based industries are lobbying, they're not lobbying for more research dollars or policies that encourage agroecology. They're lobbying for policies that subsidize industrial-scale farms that are going to use um, lots, lots and lots of chemicals. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really important thing to keep in mind because genetic engineering and pesticide use are part of that industrial treadmill that you know, the companies encourage and that, unfortunately, many of our uh, federal policies encourage. Absolutely. I need to remind our listeners that we are listening to Food Sleuth Radio, and we are speaking with Doug Gurian-Sherman. He holds a Ph.D. in plant pathology and is a senior scientist in the Food and Environment Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists. Okay, Dr. Gurian-Sherman, I need to talk a little bit about the application of 2,4-D and I shouldn't jump the gun here, but I'm assuming that unless there is a huge outpouring of consumer comments to the USDA and the EPA and everyone who's making decisions about these crops, our representatives and senators, that in all likelihood these crops will be approved. And I I really want to emphasize this idea of getting involved. This is our government. Please make your voice heard. From a public health perspective, I think that this is a very dangerous road to go, and I would advise everyone to have a comment sent into the USDA and the EPA. Call your representatives and senators. Let them know this is not a good idea for children's health and our future in terms of sustainability. But assuming that these crops are approved, and we know that 2,4-D is used now. In fact, I have a, a neighbor who's a farmer who's actually experienced drift damage, 2,4-D is volatile. The companies say they're going to produce a a version that's not as volatile, but even if it's not volatile, it's still going to get in the water. I'm concerned about that. I want to know who is responsible for crop loss or damage to wildlife, you know, these ecosystem services that we have. Who is responsible for losses due to drift? That's a good question, and I think it's something I haven't looked at closely. I mean, generally, if you can uh, show uh, cause, you know, liability can probably be placed on on the applicators or whatever. But I think the main point is we don't really want to have to even get there. We want to understand what the consequences of this technology are. Um, as you noted, traditionally, this is the most volatile of the herbicides and it causes the most drift damage. Uh, most fruit and vegetable crops are highly susceptible to this. Um, it's largely believed that a once fairly thriving grape industry in Iowa was driven out when 2,4-D came in in the 1940s. And what we're facing, so all all the kinds of things we think of as local foods, or most of them, are, are the kinds of crops that are particularly vulnerable to this. And so where these crops are, are grown, you know, around corn and soybeans and uh, potentially cotton that are going to use more and more of this herbicide, those could be threatened. So in addition to the health effects and so on, we're talking about those are important. Drift onto natural areas is incredibly important because we have data that shows that having stands of trees and uh, hedgerows and things like that around farms supply beneficial insects. You know, people know about like ladybugs and things like right. that, but there's lots of different types that actually reduce the need for insecticides. And when the drift, you know, when drift occurs onto those natural areas, it's going to harm them and then reduce habitat for those beneficial organisms. So it's a whole, you have to understand these ecosystems as a whole interconnected net or web 
of um, of organisms and environments. And these uh, chemicals, both ha- the chemicals themselves and then how they're used in industrial agriculture, simplify these environments in ways that are not biologically sustainable or, or, or sound. And so the liability issues are, are a huge one. The other thing to keep in mind, too, is that because you will be able to spray these onto the crop, the use patterns are going to be different. So before, 2,4-D was often used as a you know pretreatment or or what's called a burn down at the end of the season. Mm-hmm. But now it's going to be usable after the crop is up, which means also after fruit and vegetable crops are leafed out and are vulnerable. And so the changed use pattern, even with lower volatility, might cause higher potential damage. So. It's a real problem, but the other thing that, that I think is really important to understand is that it's also a short-term solution that will make the companies a lot of money, but in the end, it's not going to be better for farmers, even if they like to have these simple technologies, because what weed scientists readily understand is that weeds will soon develop resistance to 2,4-D and dicamba and these other herbicides for these other crops. And then we will have potentially multiple resistant weeds, as uh, some weed scientists have pointed out, that then cannot be controlled by, you know, any of the more effective herbicides. So even for conventional farmers, or, you know, conventional farmers that do the right thing and rotate their crops and do use herbicides but use very small amounts of them, are going to be jeopardized eventually uh, because the other point, which I think a lot of farmers don't even realize, is there are no really fundamentally new herbicides in the development pipeline. So when we burn out the ones that we have, farmers that depend on them are going to be up the creek without a panel, so to speak. So really, what we need to be doing right now is, it's got, it, as you indicated, you know, it's given the predilection and the history of these agencies it's likely that these will be approved and we should make a lot of noise and tell uh, lawmakers and others that we don't, you know, don't approve of this. Um, eventually that voice can get through. But the other thing we really need to do is actively support alternatives so that they have a growing niche in our environment, you know, support more research for sustainable methods, support beginning farmer and rancher and organic farmer assistance legislation and the farm bill and those kind of things that help the you know sustainable agriculture get more and more of a foothold because I'm convinced that over time as it becomes more and more obvious what the harm from industrial agriculture is and more and more obvious that these alternatives can work as we actually implement them we'll have the models that will I think help drive the process and help show that there's you know viable economically viable farming alternatives that are sustainable. So I, I do think there's hope, I, but I do think the public needs to get more involved. The local food and uh, other food movements that are getting urban consumers, for example, more involved with the kind of food they eat is a great start. But what people that are primarily interested in the health effects of local foods and fresh foods, which is great, need to take it a step further and understand that the way we grow that food and the way we grow other types of food in agriculture is also critically important. Mm-hmm. You know what? I'm afraid that a lot of people are going to get hurt before we take the right path towards those more sustainable options that you described. And I would like to think that we could maybe stop 
right here and say, no, we recognize that there's danger. Let's make those positive steps to more sustainable approaches, the agroecological approaches that you described. But as I say, I'm just worried that sort of like you're going to have to have an accident before you get a stoplight. I'm afraid we're in that position. Well, and I think, I think you know, unfortunately you might be right, but we also are having lots of accidents caused by industrial agriculture, and this is one new or, you know, uh, important piece of it. And I think as that becomes more and more, you know, visible, it'll help understanding that there are multiple harms that are being caused by this kind of agriculture, um, I think will help push us in another direction. And at the risk of being kind of trite and cliche, I mean, the longest journey does start with, you know, a single step. And if we don't take those steps, we're certainly not going to get where we want to go. So it really is important to understand that we need to all be pushing in the right direction. We need to be persistent and organized and understand that, unfortunately, these things do take time. But if we're not willing to work on it, we're never going to, you know, get to the point where that we need to get to. Well, I think you make a very good point about including more local food advocates. We certainly have seen a huge increase in local farmers markets and this, right. you know, awareness of what we're putting in our mouths. So I totally agree that we need a lot more activity. We just have a couple of minutes, but I have a question for you. Maybe it's a a philosophical question, but it seems like it always boils down to, you know, a he said, she said argument. And I've heard folks that are promoting the use of these products speak in such glowing terms about them. Do you have any ideas on how we can break out of the he said, she said model? Well, uh, you know, that seems to be a favored kind of approach by journalists. I, I guess, for one thing, we have to get away from simply looking at these things, a framing of these issues in the narrowest types of risk assessment kind of perspectives. Um, I think we have good arguments to make about that, but, you know, the companies and uh, some scientists that support them are not interested in these bigger pictures. Uh, They're interested in trying to really narrowly define the, the situation, such as narrow definitions of economic, you know, success and so on, that avoid these bigger issues, and we need to keep bringing it back you know, whenever we see these things back to the the bigger issues we've been talking about. The other thing I think that's really important to remember, though, and to keep reminding people about is that uh, there's been, I think, a tendency in the press recently to try to argue that, you know, the science and the safety is all on the side um, of of genetic engineering and that it's, you know, often framed as well-meaning but not well-informed activists that are raising concerns. I would like to say as a scientist that's very far from the truth. Um, one group in, in Europe, for example, just you know, just over a period of a few weeks did a sign-on letter strictly aimed at scientists and physicians challenging this idea that there's a consensus about safety and got 300 international scientists to, to sign that letter uh, challenging that, that idea. The basic point is that I, I can say for myself, you know, I know dozens and dozens of scientists who are not necessarily fundamentally opposed to genetic engineering, but have a lot of concerns about various aspects, from health aspects to regulatory aspects to environmental impacts. Well, Dr. Gurian and Sherman, we're going to have to leave it at that because our time, unfortunately, has run out. But I want to thank you so much for being my guest. I want to remind our listeners that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia. 
Please go to the Union of Concerned Scientists website. We'll make that available connected with this program, www.ucsusa.org, and you can read all about Dr. Douglas Gurian Sherman's work, including a link to his blog. Thank you again so much for being my guest, Dr. Gurian Sherman. Well, thanks so much for having me. 